Looking at our world from a theological perspective, this is the Theology Central Podcast, making Theology Central. Good afternoon, good early evening. It is Wednesday, February the 1st, 2023. It is currently 5.33 p.m. Central Time, and I'm coming to you live from the Theology Central studio here in Abilene, Texas, where we're under, we are under, not under, we are under a winter storm warning. We are under an ice storm warning to be exact. And because we are under, we are under a ice storm warning, I'm obviously not at my church. I'm here in the studio for the podcast. I and I'm like, well, we're, we're not going to be having in-person services tonight because everything is shut down. We've had ice fall and, well, schools have been canceled since Monday. We're under the ice storm warning till tomorrow and uh, everything is shut down. So th- this this is it. This is it. So the good thing is about technology, I may not be able to make it to the church but I can turn on the microphone and go live even though we're under, we're under, why would I say that? We're under an ice storm warning. And speaking of that ice storm warning, did you hear the live broadcast that I did the other night? Let me read the ice storm warning to you. Freezing rain is expected through tonight and into early Thursday morning across the area. Sleet is likely to mix with the freezing rain in northern and central parts of the area through this evening. The precipitation could be moderate to heavy at times. I don't know. Precipitation. I don't know why the other night, I, I I think I said it correctly. Precipitation. I think I said it correctly like two or three times in a row. I think so. And then, but my mind was telling me it's not precipitation. I, I My mind was like, it's participation. I don't know what I was thinking. And so then I tried to correct it. Then instead of saying precipitation, I was saying precipitation instead of precipitation. And it was so, it was so weird. So when it was all over, and again, that had nothing to do with what we were studying. It had, it was not, it was nothing significant, but it's just amazing when you're live in, uh, live under the air, when you're live on the air. See how I messed up the word under and see now under, well, I, it'll, it'll bother me all night, even though it's just this, a simple mistake. But here's what happens when you're live on the air and you read something like, I'm going to just tell everyone about the ice storm warning. And then you're reading and you see the word precipitation. And for some weird reason, you say it. And as soon as you say it, your mind's like, that's, I don't know if that's right. I don't know if that's right. But you're supposed to still be talking, right? But your mind is like, you said that word wrong. You said that word wrong. You messed that word up. That's not, that's live on the internet. Everyone's laughing at you. You better fix it. And then, and then you're like, so do I keep saying precipitation? Do I go back? Do I acknowledge the mistake? Do I just ignore the mistake? So that you're trying to figure all of this out where you're supposed to be talking about, you know, in 197 AD, Tertullian said this about baptism or whatever the subject is you're talking about. Hey, here's this problem with, you know, that I'm struggling with in Colossians chapter three, whatever theological, biblical church history issue you're dealing with, your mind is like, who cares about that? You messed up the word precipitation or you messed up the word under. Are you? And it's just so weird how that works. So, but that's the situation. We are under an ice storm warning, winter storm warning. Uh, we're under, I think, I think now they've just reduced it to the ice storm warning. We were under a winter storm watch, then a winter storm warning, then an ice storm warning. If I, if I, follow the the exact you know chronological order and how all of this happened. And so here in West Texas, I know many of you you'll be like, "So what? That, that's no big deal. A little bit of sleet." But here in Texas, it shuts everything down completely. So, no church tonight, but I'm here and we're going to try to do what we should be doing tonight at Victory Baptist Church. Now, I'm going to be very honest with you. I'm going to be very open with you. I would prefer to do this in front of people. It just seems to flow a little bit better. It seems to, it it feels more productive because when you get into the weeds of certain issues related to church history and we get into the weeds, right? We're not very good at Victory Baptist Church. We're not very good on this podcast of basically, you know, taking a drone and just flying over 
you know, a hundred years of church history or over a document in church history. I'm not very good at those flyovers, right? For me, it's like someone's like, no, you should send up a drone and just kind of do an overview. Well, as soon as the drone gets to the beginning of where we're going to start the overview, my drone just crashes. And we're tra- we're right there in the midst of the trees. We're we're lost, right? Because I I can't do that. Like, well, here's Tertullian, and somewhere between 197 and 215 AD, I don't have the dates right in front of me right now. He he wrote a document called On Baptism, and here's the basic gist of it. Here's what you need to take away, and I'll and just take random quotes from it, like. Here's from chapter two. This is from chapter five. And that's how most pastors would probably handle it, right? Just here's, here's some basic things you need to know about the, the, the history of the document. Here's, here's what it says. Here's its basic overview. And here's how we understand it. Now, I know many people would, would greatly appreciate that, but I just can't do that. And it's to my own detriment that I can't, right? Because I get lost down in these weeds and then a series goes longer and longer and longer. And then I've got other series that I'm supposed to do. And I think sometimes people lose interest. I know the way I'm supposed to do it, right? You got to make it short. You need to make it succinct. You got to give a summary and you've got to move on or people will lose interest. And if you don't get, and the more you get into the weeds, the greater chance you're going to stumble over this or fumble over this. Like if you if you do it in a very like, summary way, you can just be very careful with what you say and avoid anything that may be difficult or you may stumble over or you like, you can, you can really polish it up. So you come across more authoritative, you come across more professional. The people think that you're smarter than you probably are and, and everything, and everyone seems to be happy, but I just, I don't, I definitely, I don't like to do that about anything, but especially church history, because here's the reason why church history is constantly utilized in my opinion to either bully people or manipulate people into thinking something like, hey, well, the church father said this, and you're, and, and you're like, okay, so you've got one quote. Like, what did the church fathers actually say? Because the average person sitting in the pew, let's be honest, is not going to go read 33 volumes of the church fathers. They're just not going to do it. And I, and I don't think really a pastor can place that. I mean, I, I guess I should blame myself because I've kind of had that expectations. In some ways, I feel like Christians should, but I can understand that you really can't place that expectation on the average church member that they're not going to dedicate all of their time reading 33 volumes of the church fathers. Maybe, maybe, Maybe in a perfect world, they would, and then they would be knowledgeable about church history, and they would not be manipulated, and they could not be tossed to and fro with every wind of doctrine and the way people utilize the church fathers. Maybe, maybe I, in some ways, I do expect it, but I think the re- if we're going to be realistic, they, your church members are not going to do that. You always may have that one or two or three who are the exceptions. But in general, they're just not going to do it. So guess what? Someone comes along and says, well, the church father said this or the church father thought this. And they either take the word for it, right? Maybe they'll go look up a few things. But if anyone looks up the church fathers and starts reading it, they're immediately or like, I don't know what any of this means. I don't know what they're talking about. This is absolutely crazy. And they just probably lose interest and like whatever. Or they just kind of take the attitude, Look, I don't care what the church fathers say. I'm going to, I'm just going to believe whatever I want to believe. I, 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 I rarely does it ever work out in a really positive way, at least in, in my way. The church fathers are constantly, I think, used and manipulated and used to, to bully and manipulate people. And I think some, I think the average church member, I think they, I, I don't know how much, I mean, I know that, that some of them will say, well, the church fathers are important, but they're not spending a lot of time reading and studying them. So that's why when we, when there's certain subjects that we have to go to the church fathers, I have a tendency to say, well, let's work through it line by line. And I know that can be tedious. I know it can be boring. I know it's not the most exciting but I just know this, what I'm trying to do is give you the information for yourself, right? So that you don't have me tell you what Tertullian says. You don't have some other pastor telling you what Tertullian says. You get to hear it for yourself. You may disagree with the way I'm reading it, but at least you hear it for yourself. I may stumble over some words and you may not like, I may say unter instead of under. I may say 
uh, precipitation instead of precipitation. Now, those are not even words from Tertullian, but if I can't even get those right, I may stumble over some words, but I think ultimately it's still beneficial, right? Because at least we're walking through it together. So when it's done, you can say, from this point forward, I know what Tertullian said on baptism. I know what he said. So the next time someone tells me what he said, or someone quotes him as some kind of authority, like, yeah, the same Tertullian who said this or this or this or this, or or like, hey, Adam was created from the dust of the earth, but hey, guess what? That dust was moist and juicy. It had water in it. So it's a picture of baptism. All right. I mean, come on. I mean, there's, I mean, we've already read some of the things that he has said that you're kind of like, what in the world? How his hermeneutic is, he's just, well, water is mentioned in Genesis. Boom. It has to be a picture of baptism. You're like, wait, wait, how did you attach baptism to the waters mentioned in Genesis one? How, how, what hermeneutical system are you utilizing? So I I think that when you read that for yourself, you may think it's amazing, but trust me, you may think it's amazing, but at least you have to acknowledge what is actually said. And if you want to acknowledge what is actually said, then then at least we're starting from a factual point of view. So I, I, I struggle with these kinds of series because I know what I'm supposed to do. I, I want everyone to know, I know what I'm supposed to do, right? Make it short, make it succinct, give everyone a summary, give a little bit of opinion on it, make it fast, make it quick, make it simple, and people will love you for that. And I'm like, no, we're going in, all right? Everyone put on their backpacks, we're going into the wilderness. I don't know if we will ever make it out, but we're going in, (laughs) Good, bad, ugly. And it, we may come out with scratches. We may come out more confused, but we're going all the way in. And I, and then at least for me, I know another thing that I do wrong <laughs> is once I'm like, everyone put on their backpacks. Let's go in. Sometimes when I get in and I'm like, you know, I'm sitting there, you know, trying to cut through the weeds and the, and the trees and everything. Sometimes I just want to sit down and go, uh, wait, who came up with this idea? Who is the brilliant person who's like, let's go in. I mean, who's the person who did, it was a dumb idea. And I'm like, wait a minute, it's me. It's me. And so then sometimes I'm turning on the microphone going, well, we're in part seven on this series that I no longer want to be doing. And I, I know I'm supposed to keep selling it, right? I'm supposed to be saying, this is the most exciting, life-changing series you have ever heard. This is amazing. Aren't you glad? And, I, and I'm not good at doing that hype. I just tend to be very real. Like, hey, now that, that doesn't mean I, I give up. It means that I know that I, I sometimes can feel what you're feeling. Man, this is hard stuff. This is difficult. I don't know if this is exciting anymore. But I, but I, so I just try to be very real. Sometimes it's not exciting for me because it's difficult. And it's just, sometimes you're like, what in the world? What what are we gaining from this? But for this study that we're doing, what we're gaining is trying to know what the early church actually said in regards to baptism. So I spent 13 minutes saying all of that. Let me now give us an official intro and we can kick this off tonight in a beneficial way. All right. I hope all of that makes sense, but just, just sharing my feelings. Here we go. Baptism started showing up everywhere. I turned around baptism here, baptism here, baptism here on, I think it was a Saturday. Someone contacted me via discord and said, Hey, I would like to talk to you basically about baptism. And I'm like, okay, I'll talk to you. And so they said, well, go here. And I went there and I'm like, okay, I'm I'm trying to trying to do the Discord kind of call, and you're not answering. It's like, no, 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 you need to click on this link. And I'm like, okay. So immediately, well, wait a minute. I'm, I'm trying to call you directly. Why wouldn't you just answer the call directly and we just talk? But I clicked the link, and as soon as I clicked the link, it took me into a Discord like channel, sub-channel, whatever the correct technical term is. And there was all these people, and I'm like, whoa, 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 whoa. I thought it was just like we, you and I were having a conversation. And immediately when I came in, it became immediate. I mean, it, it was, it, basically it was like an ambush. 
And it was like everyone had their guns drawn and like, he's the Baptist. Pop, 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 pop. You don't believe in infant baptism. You don't believe infant baptism saves. What is wrong with you? You're in sin. Your church is in sin. And I'm like, what just happened? Where? Oh, what? Come on. Explain yourself. The church fathers, the church fathers, the church fathers. Don't you know that? And don't you disagree with the church fathers? The church fathers. And it's like, what just happened? What just happened? And it was like, I mean, it really was so messed up and and then they tried to act like that somehow like i wasn't ready or i need and it was just it was like it became obvious like look you guys don't want to have a discussion you called me in to try to prove to me that i'm wrong well that's just not why didn't you say i don't want to have a discussion i want to spend 45 minutes telling you you're wrong they're like how dare you say that we we could change our minds Okay, you look. You, you this is <laughs> there's no there's no desire to change minds. You just want to debate. You just want to argue. Sometimes the debate and an argument is a waste of time. So that happened. Our our Bible study exercise curriculum was in Acts two. They did a little article on baptism, basically in the early church, and 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 did uh, someone did a word study. What we're uh, where we're supposed to be doing a word study on discernment. They decided to use the word study method on baptism, and it's just everywhere. And then on our long gospel study, we ended up talking baptism again. So baptism was everywhere. So I'm like, okay. Well, since I got basically hijacked and accused of, you know, well, the early church, the early church, the early church, the early church, how dare you disagree with the early church? You've got to go with the early church. I mean, you've got to go with the only time you disagree with the early church is when they go against scripture, meaning the only time you disagree with the early church is when they disagree with your interpretation of scripture, because they're always right until they disagree with me. Okay, whatever. It just became this nonsensical thing, but it bothered me greatly. Because one, it was almost like an attitude, like, I don't know the early church or I don't know the church fathers, which really ticks me off since I've taught, read, school, all the things I've done about the early church fathers, but I'm okay. So I was done with that. I left though. I just, I kind of like, I was done with those individuals. There was no point, but just because I was done with them doesn't mean I was done with the subject because I'm like, okay, well, I've been challenged. So let's, once again, let's do this. So I grabbed three early church and and three early church documents that gives us kind of an idea of the early church from around, depending on how we date from around 50 AD to about 225 AD. And if you've been following us, you know what those three sources are. The Didache or the Didache, literally I can give you two books that say pronounce it Didache and another book will say pronounce it Didache. All right. But the Didache We've already looked at that. Nothing about infant baptism at all. Nothing about it even being sacramental or regenerative. Basically, you know, hey, before you're baptized, you have to do this. You have to be instructed. You need to fast. You need to be baptized into the water, running water. Cold water is preferred. But if you can't find water and you're having trouble, you need to at least pour it on the person three times in the name of the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit. So it was pretty simple, pretty straightforward. The idea seemed to be clearly you're being baptized into water. Not water is being put on you, but you're being put into the water. You have to be instructed prior to, and you have to fast prior to, seeming to wipe out infants and seeming to be uh, referring to, basically, you're baptized after you believe. That seems to be where the Didache would lead. Now, it doesn't mention any of this other stuff. Now, some people say, well, because it doesn't mention it, it doesn't mean it's forbidding it. Yeah, but it would be weird that in something that early, they don't even mention at all. The instructions for baptizing an infant. It doesn't even mention it in any way, shape, or form. That's kind of odd. But when you go from the Didache around 50, now some uh, write, some dated as late as, say, 100 AD, and you jump to the next source, so the Didache, the next source was Tertullian on baptism. Now you're in the 200s. Well, maybe 196 to somewhere in the 200s. And then the third, the third document we're going to look at is the Apostolic Tradition by Hippolytus. So those are the three. Now, the reason I chose these three is because they give us a pretty straight chronological order from around 50 AD to about 225. And I think, okay, that gives, because everyone's like, well, from like 300 on, there's agreement. Yeah, but what about before 300? And let me tell you, when you go from the Didache (laughs) to Tertullian on baptism, it's like you just entered into a whole new universe. It's like, what? just happened. 
So we worked through the Didache, and we've started working on Tertullian on baptism. And it's been a wild ride already. It's been crazy. I'm not going to go back and review everything. So tonight, we're just, I know, I would prefer to be in the church, right? Because again, when you're in the weeds with this stuff, having people in front of you, having people around you, right? Like, if I misread something, or if I read it too quick, or if I skip a punctuation, or or if I'm like, "Hey, so so what what you know what do you think?" Like I, I there's there or someone can raise their hand. It works better, but winter storm, ice storm warning, precipitation falling. We can't be there. So I could wait till Sunday. Or I could try to advance this. So we're going to advance it. Are you ready? We're only going to look at one chapter tonight. We're only going to look at one chapter. We're only going to look at one chapter. So here we go. We've looked at chapter three. And chapter three was water chosen as a vehicle of divine operation. And wherefore, it's prominence first of all in creation. Where Tertullian does this weird thing, thinking that because water is simply mentioned in Genesis 1, it has to be referenced to baptism. It's really bizarre and it's crazy. Tonight, we come to chapter four. The, um, yeah, okay, make sure we, we haven't, we didn't cover this. The prime evil hovering of the Spirit of God over the waters, typical of baptism. So this is the title The prime evil hovering of the Spirit of God over the waters, typical of baptism. In other words, in Genesis, let me read for you. Okay. In Genesis, and uh, someone just says, uh, thank you for doing this. Well, no, thank you. Sorry if my intro went long, but just talking about everything. But here we go. In Genesis chapter 1, verse 2, we read these words. And the earth was without form and void, and darkness was upon the face of the deep, and the Spirit of God moved upon the face of the waters. And Tertullian's mind, boom, this is typical of baptism. In fact, we learn so much about baptism from Genesis 1-2, which again calls into question the whole hermeneutic. How in the world do you get baptism here? How do you even see baptism? The only, the only correlation is baptism has water and water is mentioned here. But he's like, this is it, this is it, this is it, this is it. So again, the title, chapter The primeval hovering of the Spirit of God over the waters typical of baptism. The universal element of water thus made a channel of sanctification, resemblance between the outward sign and the inward grace. Now, a lot of people will try to use Tertullian to prove baptismal regeneration, to prove infant baptism. But let me make it very, very, very clear before we even get into lost, because even trying to read through this, it's just going to be, I know it's going to be sloppy, but that's okay. I think it would be fair, or let me, let me pose it as a question before I make it a dogmatic assertion. As we work through this, ask yourself, is Tertullian demonstrating a salvation by faith alone based off an imputed righteousness, or is he speaking of a salvation where where righteousness is infused inside of us? Is it an imputed righteousness or is it an infused righteousness? And I think, I think you're, well, you can draw your own conclusions. You can draw your own conclusions, right? So here we go. In fact, just even notice what he says, resemblance between the outward sign and the inward grace, but all right, you, you can see. All right, here we go. But it will suffice, and I'm reading from the actual document, chapter four of uh, Tertullian on baptism. But it will suffice to have thus called at the outset those points in which withal is recognized that primary principle of baptism. So it's, he says, it will suffice to have thus called at the outset those points in which withal is recognized the primary principle of baptism. So he wants us to see the primary principle of baptism. What was even then foreknoted by the very attitude assumed 
for a type of baptism. Now, where's he going to go? That the Spirit of God, who hovered over the waters from the beginning, would continue to linger over the waters of the baptized. Now, he's quoting from Genesis, and he's like, see, the Spirit hovering over the waters? See, that basically tells us he was going to hover over the waters of the baptized, that he was going to remain hovering over the waters of those who are baptized. Now, I don't know, again, what, what's the hermeneutic here? There, there's, it, do you, can you think of anywhere in the New Testament where it basically talks about baptism and it says, as it's mentioned in Genesis 1, I don't think you're going to, as it was written in Genesis, as it was written a long time ago, and then quote something from Genesis. I, I mean, maybe, maybe, maybe if you think you can find something, then okay. But that's, that's where he's, that's, that's the argument he's trying to make. And it's fascinating because all of his arguments so far really come from, he's trying to make an argument from Genesis. He refers a little bit to Acts about the uh, Ethiopian eunuch being uh, baptized. I think he makes a reference to that, but he doesn't really, I think he's going to do so here, but he doesn't, he's yet to quote one New Testament scripture really about baptism. I mean, basically he's like, how do we know baptism does all these wonderful things? Look to Genesis. Now, we're a long ways from done, so he may move us there, but you would just think he would kind of start with these others, but that, that's kind of has been his approach. All right, so here we go. But a holy thing, of course, hovered over a holy, or else from that which hovered over that which was hovered over, borrowed a holiness since it is necessary that in every case an underlying material substance should catch the quality of that which overhangs it. Most of all, a a corporeal of a spiritual adapted as the spiritual is through the subtleness of its substance, both for penetrating and insinuating. So let's stop right here. Basically, he's like either a holy was hovering over a holy or the holy was hovering over a substance that then takes or gathers or becomes holy because of the holy hovering over it. Right. So he can talk about substance and corporal and all of these different uh, phrases that he's utilizing. But basically, OK, I have I'm going to use this idea again. I'm going to I'm going to do this again. I did this yesterday. There's water. Now, holy, I'm going to hold something. I'm going to hold my Bible over the bottle of water. All right. So I've got my Bible. Here's the water. Holy is hovering over the water. Now, either holy is hovering over holy, but he seems to make the argument that the holy, because it's hovering over the water, the water then gets that holiness. It it obtains that holiness because of the holiness hovering over it. So now the water, in a, in a sense, gets the attributes of holiness. It gets that, it, it, it gains some of that quality, some of that power, some of that in its substance, it, it gains it because holiness is hovering over it. All right. That, that's kind of where he is going. All right. Okay. And again, as he says that in every case, an underlying material substance should catch the quality of that which overhangs it. Most of all, a corporal of a spiritual. In other words, you have this, the, 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 the substance catches the quality of the, the water catches the quality of the holy or the, or the, you can say the material catches the quality of the spiritual. That, that's his way, and it begins to pen, penetrate it. It begins to take it upon itself. Thus, the nature of the waters, sanctified by the Holy One, itself conceived with all the power of sanctifying. Because the waters, because the Spirit hovered over the waters in Genesis, then water gained that power of sanctification. The, the water itself gained the power of sanctification. This, this is the argument. Making then water have the ability to sanctify. The water having the ability to regenerate. The water having the ability to bring forth spiritual life where there is death. 
This is their, their, their argument. Now, you would think in some ways, well, if, if the water from the very beginning took on that power, then every time we take a shower, take a bath, swim, should it just wash it away? I mean, didn't it gain the power? You say that's a ridiculous argument. I'm, I'm just trying to follow the logical train of thought. If the water's at the beginning, boom, gain this spiritual power, then does something have to activate the power or does the substance of the water have the power in and of itself? Then everyone who ever gets into water should be sanctified. Again, what does he say? Um, Thus, the nature of the waters, so the nature of the waters, and I'm reading verbatim from from Tertullian. I'm not going to try to skip any words. Listen carefully. Sanctified by the Holy One, that's the Holy Spirit hovering over it, it's self-conceived, the water, it's self-conceived with with all the power of sanctifying. So see, it gained the power. Then he goes on to say, let no one say, why then are we pray baptized with the very waters, which then existed in the very beginning? So, so, you know, shouldn't we be baptized with the waters from the very beginning? He goes on to say, not with those waters, of course, except in so far as the genus indeed is one, but the very species very, uh, very many. Now, genus, this word right here. Genus. All right. Genus. Let me play that again. Genus, genus. is a class, kind, or group marked by common characteristics or by one common characteristically. Specifically, a category of biological classification ranking between the family and the species. All right. So it's kind of, it's related. So he's saying we, we have the genus of that water. We may not have, he, he's trying to argue, we may not have the original water, but we have the genus of it. It, it. it fits in between the, as he draws the correlation in Tertullian, he draws the correlation because I don't want to, I don't want to speak words that are not fair. Um, he says, not with, of course, not with those waters, of course, except in so far as the genus indeed is one, but the species very many. But what is an attribute to the genus reappears likewise in the species. So in other words, what we have here is the attribute of holiness, the attribute of the power to sanctify, the attribute to bring life is passed on into the waters that we have. So he's saying we may not have the, be able to be baptized into the waters that was in Genesis 1, but we can be baptized into, in a sense, the species of it, right? The genus of it. And it has those attributes. The attributes are passed on into all the water. That, that seems to be the, the way, the argument he's trying to make. All right, so then let's go. So again, the attribute to the genus appears likewise in the species. And accordingly, it makes no difference whether a man be washed in a sea or a pool a stream or a fount or a lake or a trough. Nor is there any distinction between those whom John baptized in the Jordan and those whom Peter baptized in the Tiber, unless withal the eunuch whom Philip baptized in the midst of his journey with chance water derived therefrom more or less of salvation than others. So in other words, it doesn't matter where the water came from, it, 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 it maintains the attribute. doesn't matter if it's in a sea. It's water. And water has this attribute. Water has this power. Water has this ability. Now, my question was, if it has that power and has that ability, then everyone who gets water, should it not then give that spiritual benefit? Should it not sanctify? Should it not regenerate? Should it not give life? Why is it that, well, the water is only good if we say a prayer over it. It's only good if it's, it's only good if you bring the baby to a church. So now is it the water that has the power? Is it the priest that has the power? Is it the pastor who has the power? Is it the prayer that has the power? Is it the faith of the, who has the power? Tertullian is really going for the water, 
He's going for the water, but he's going to, he's going to, he's got, he, he has to realize logically where that's leading. Logically, it would lead to me. Well, it rains. Everyone who gets wet in the rain, you've been sanctified. You've been regenerated. Like everyone has taken a bath. I mean, the whole world should be regenerated. But, 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 so we have to limit it. The water has a power, but the water's power doesn't seem to be activated, I guess, until you're in a church. And then someone says a prayer. Or maybe it doesn't work until you say in the name of the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit. So what if I, what if when it rains, I stand outside and like in the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, and everyone who gets hit, gets caught in the rain gets immediately saved. Does that, that doesn't, I know people say, you're, that's ridiculous. You're, you're making, you're using a ludicrous argument. I'm just trying to take this to its logical conclusion. All waters, this is what he says, all waters, therefore, this is, this is Tertullian, all waters, therefore, in virtue of the pristine privilege of their origin do, now, please watch, 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 see the game that's played here? Okay, listen. All waters, therefore, the virtue of their pristine privilege of their origin, because waters, in a sense, originated with the spirit hovering over it, and the spirit continues to hover over the waters. The waters gain this power because of what hovered over it. Listen, that this. watch the game here. It's very subtle. All waters, therefore, in virtue of the pristine privilege of their origin, do after invocation of God attain the sacramental power of sanctification. So it's after the invocation of God, they attain the sacramental power. So they don't have the power until the invocation of God. Now, the invocation of God, I don't know, is he referring to our prayer? Like, okay, but all right. After invocation of God, attain sacramental power of sanctification. For the spirit, spirit immediately supervenes from the heavens and rest over the waters, sanctifying them from himself. And the, and being thus sanctified, they imbibe at the same time the power of sanctifying. So it seems like the waters, so the waters have some kind of pristine origin. They gain the power, but literally the power is not activated until someone says a prayer. That seems to be the argument. And then once I say the prayer, this water that I have right here, I don't know exactly what words I'm supposed to say, but if I say the exact right words, and let's say uh, my next door neighbor, they've recently had a baby. Let's say they need to run to the store here in a few minutes. They say, hey, can you come over and watch the baby? And I walk over and I'm like, okay, hey, little baby, what are you doing? Oh, I got water right here. Well, they'll never know this. So I say a prayer. I take a little bit of the water in my hands and I sprinkle in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. I put the cap back on. They come home. How's everything? Everything's good. How's the baby? Better than ever. Better than you can imagine. You don't even know. The, the, your baby went from just a good baby to a, the best baby ever. You'll, you're going to be shocked in how this baby grows up because their sins have been washed away. Okay. But you don't even say that. You just say, it's, the baby is wonderful. And you leave and you're like, well, there you go. Salvation has come. Now, does that not work? Because I'm not in a church. But I'm ordained, so if I'm ordained, does that work? And again, I've said, if this works, every Lutheran church in America, and I'm going to say this, every Lutheran church who believes that baptism does these things, it washes away sins and and the baby becomes born again, because, you know, I was Lutheran. Well, I, I believe every Lutheran church in America is committing criminal act. Why? Because every Lutheran church in America should have absolute free daycare. From, from newborns to, say, three years of age. Newborn to three years of age. Or newborn to two years of age. Because you, you want to make sure the child doesn't really understand what's going on because you don't want them to go home and tell their parents. So between, you know, between newborn and two, bring your child. Free daycare. They, we'll build a, the largest building we can. We'll, we'll spend all the money. And then everyone who drops off their their kids, thank you so very much. We, it's a privilege and an honor to watch your kid for free. You go work, we're going to take care of your kid for free. And then as soon as they leave, 
Name of the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit. You don't need to say a word. And then that child's been magically born again, magically saved. Now, if you really believe that that salvation is based off of the imputed righteousness, then the kid can't lose it because he's saved by the imputed righteousness, right? Now, if you're going to say he can lose it, then you know, clearly you don't believe in the salvation by imputed righteousness. At that moment, the kid should be good to go. Why, why don't they do that? Well, I mean, I don't understand that. Like, if it works that way, I mean, I would just like, I mean, you would just walk around. I would just start a daycare service. Like I, I just, I, I only watch newborns to two years of age. And you would just sit at home every day, sprinkle, 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 sprinkle. And you say, well, it only works for, for, for the ordained. Okay. Well then I would have the daycare and, and call my pastor. Okay. Hey, hey, I got three new ones today. Got three new ones. Get over here ASAP. Get over here ASAP. Hurry, 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 hurry. We can produce salvation. People say that's ridiculous. No, it's not. Either it works or it doesn't work. Now, please note what, what uh, Tertullian says. After invocation of God, the waters attain sacramental power of sanctification. For the spirit immediately supervenes from the heavens and rests over the waters, sanctifying them from himself and being thus sanctified, they imbibe at the same time the power of sanctifying. Albeit the similitude may be admitted to the, to the suitable, to the simple act that since we are defiled by sins, as it were by dirt, we should be washed from those stains in waters. But as sins do not show themselves in our flesh, and so much as no one carries on the skin the spot of idolatry or fornication or fraud. So persons of that kind are foul in the spirit, which is the author of the sin. For the spirit is Lord, the flesh is servant. Yet they each mutually share the guilt, the spirit on the ground of command, the flesh of sub, 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 subservience. Therefore, after the waters have been in manner endued with medicinal virtue through the intervention of the angel the spirit is corporally washed in the waters and the flesh and the same spiritually cleansed they're cleansed sin is gone it does something it does something sin is gone that that's salvation now They're connecting it. He's connecting it because it, it's the water is imbibed with this power. That's where this chapter ends. I Now, the next chapter, look what he does. Use made of water by the heathen type of the angel at the pool of Bethsaida. The use made of water by the heathen. Now, he's now, now, now here's the thing. He's got to understand that the heathen use water in a lot of their rituals. So he's going to have to make a way that it doesn't work. Right? It only works when we do the invocation to God, it seems. Then it works. It, the power, the water has the power, but the power doesn't, is not activated until the invocation. Then it works. For example, I'll just read a little bit of this next chapter. I, I don't, I just, I don't want to get too far into this. But here we go. Um, uh, it says, well, but the nations, who are strangers to all understanding of spiritual powers, ascribe to their idols the imbuing of waters with the self-same efficacy. So they do, but they cheat themselves with waters which are widowed. For washing is the channel through which they are initiated into some sacred rites of some notorious Isis or Mithras. The God themselves, likewise, they honor by washing. Moreover, by carrying water around and sprinkling it, they everywhere expiate 
country seats, houses, temples, and whole cities at all events. At the Apollinarian, and then he mentions a, a different group here. Don't know, are you familiar with this group? Eleusinian. Eleusinian, right? So he says all these groups, they, they, they will do all of this stuff with water, events at the Apollinarian or the Eleusinian Games, they are baptized and they presume that the effect of their doings, that is their regeneration and the remission of the penalties due to their perjuries. So he says, even the heathens, when they go to these games for the Apollinarian and Eleusinian games, when they go to these games, the people there will get baptized and presume that the effect of their doing, that is their regeneration and the remission of the penalties due to their perjuries. That, that, that even the heathen had this idea that water would somehow wash away their sins. Now I'm curious, is, was Christianity more influenced by these pagan practices or were the pagans being influenced by supposed Christian practices? I think, let's look up, I'm going to look at something. Uh, now, see, Eleusinian, do we have a Eleusinian? Hang on, here we go. Do we know when? I'm going to look here. I'm going to look up El, the El, Eleusinians. Hang on. Eleusinian. Eleusinian. Eleusinian, hang on. Uh, do we have a date? Do we have a date? Okay, see, uh, the Eleusinian mysteries relate to a myth goes back to 650 B.C. I cannot say for sure the Eleusinian... See here. I'm looking here. I was trying to find the date. Trying to find the date. Uh, Eleusinian relating to Eleusis, Eleusinian mysteries. Yeah, this seems to date back way before the church, way before the church. Okay. Now, let me go back to Tertullian. All right. There's the Eleusinian ga uh, games, Apo uh, Apollinarian. Let's go to Apollinarian. Just going to look at something here. Just curious. Just going to be, I, I want to make sure I don't say anything that's, that's, that's Apollinarianism. Apollinarian is the, uh, well, Apollinarianism. Now that's going to be, yeah. Um, I think it's, uh, yeah, this has got to be, he's got to be referencing something else because I'm thinking of Apollinarianism, which was a Christological heresy, but that shows up in like the late 200s. That shows up at the Council of uh, Council of Nicaea. So I think he's referring, see. Okay, here we go. The Apollinarian heresy. Now that you got Eutychianism, this is the Christological heresy. Now, if Tertullian's writing before that, Apollinarian it's got to be thinking of, of something else. Apollinarian and Eleusinian games, they are baptized. So just the point is there's these pagan groups, these heathen groups who were doing baptism for washing away some kind of sin. He mentions that. He, he acknowledges that. He doesn't deny that in any way, shape, or form. I just don't know. Apollinarian. Yeah, I, I, oh, I would like to know exactly which group, but this is what he says. So they are the, the um, Apollinarian and Elu Eleusinian games. They are baptized and they presume that the effects of their doing, that is their regeneration and the remission of the penalties due to their perjuries. Among the ancients, again, whoever had defiled himself with murder was wont to go in quest of purifying waters. So he, even him, even Tertullian is saying the ancients. So from his time, he's even looking back to ancient times, which would clearly predate quote unquote Christianity. And he's saying even then they went to purifying waters when they were guilty of something. Therefore, it is the mere nature of water and that it is the appropriate material for washing away leads men to flatter themselves with a belief in omens of purification. How much more truly 
Well, waters render that service through the authority of God by whom all their nature has been constituted. So the very nature of water has been constituted with this power to wash it away. But when it's done the right way and God brings forth that power, well, then it will wash away the sin. It will wash away the guilt. It will basically regenerate and bring forth spiritual life. But it's interesting that there's even an acknowledgement that this was happening in ancient pagan practices, that in ancient pagan religions and ancient heathen groups, there was baptisms. I mean, I, I, I'm not trying to come up with a conspiratorial theory, but it is interesting that, well, what, you know, because where did the idea of being baptized to wash away your sins? Now, you could argue there's some scriptures that would give that indication. I understand that. But it, it, it is interesting that even, even Tertullian's acknowledging this. If men think that water is endued with a medicinal virtue by religion, what religion is more effectual than that of the living God? When fact being acknowledged, we recognize here also the zeal of the devil reviling the things of God while we find him to practicing baptism in his subjects. So he's trying to argue, see, even Satan, even his religion, in a sense, is they're baptizing their subjects because he's trying to revile or the things of God. What similarity is there? The unclean cleanses. The ruiner sets free. The damned absolves. His will, forsooth, destroy his own work by washing away the sins which himself inspires. These remarks have been set down by the way of testimony against such as reject the faith. If they put no trust in the things of God, the spurious imitations of which in the case of God's rival, they do trust in. Are these not other cases too, in which without any sacrament, unclean spirits brood on waters? and spurious imitation of that brooding of the divine spirit in the very beginning. Witness all shady founts and all unfrequent brooks and the ponds and the baths and the conduits and private houses or the cisterns and wells, which are said to have the property of spiriting away uh, through the power that is of a hurtful spirit. Men whom waters have drowned or affected with madness or with fear, they call nymph, caught or lymphatic or hydrophobic. Why have we adduced these instances? Lest any think it's too hard for belief that a holy angel of God should grant his presence to waters to temper them to men's salvation, while the evil angel holds frequent profane commerce with the selfsame element to man's ruins. So what he's saying is, hey, hey, you hear about all of those like evil spirits hang out around water. Why do they hang around water? Well, they hang around water because they're imitating what the spirit did in Genesis. And the spirit, when hits with the water, boom, salvation. But when the evil spirits, it will try to ruin or drown or, or, or set someone crazy. So like water has all kinds of spiritual implications because it's endued with some kind of spiritual force. It's almost sounds very new age-ish is what it sounds like to me, is is what it sounds like. It doesn't sound much like Christianity. It sounds like a lot of, um, it, it sounds a lot like superstition in some ways. But he's, so he wants us to get an example of where an angel does this stuff. He goes, if it seems a novelty for an angel to be present in waters, an example of what was to come to pass has forerun. An angel, by the intervention, was wont to stir up the pool at Bethsaida. They, they who were complaining of ill health used to watch for him, for whoever had been the first to descend into them after his washing ceased to complain. The figure of corporal healing saying of a spiritual healing, according to this rule by which things carnal are always antecedent, figurative of those spiritual. So in other words, because there was this belief that you could get into this pool, the angel would stir the waters and you would be healed since that was this idea. Well, see, see, that was a picture that was the antecedent of what was real. It was pointing to what, well, that this water could really wash away sin and do these things. Um, They go on 
they, uh, let me see here. And thus, when the grace of God advanced to higher degree among men, an ascension of efficacy was granted to the waters and to the angel. They who were wont to remote, to remedy bodily defects now heal the spirit. They who used to work temporal salvation now renew eternal. They who did set free but once in the year now save people in body, daily death being done away through the ablution of sins. The guilt being removed, of course, the penalty is removed too. Thus men will be restored to God, to his likeness, when in days bygone had been conformed to the image of God, the image is counted to be in this form, the likeness in his eternity. For he receives again the spirit of God, which had then first received him from his, but afterwards lost through sin. In other words, hey, once you get baptized, once you get the water, sin is gone, eternal life, the spirit is there, and since you're kind of conformed back to his image, you're restored back to what was lost by sin. All because of... Now, he does seem to say there needs to be an invocation. But the water, he's convinced the water, there's some power, spiritual power in the water. And that the Satan knows this, so he tries to utilize water for these pagan practices. But the, the water in the right circumstance, boom, life. Now, he hasn't mentioned anything about babies. He's not mentioned anything about babies so far. But clearly, the sacramental system is an event. And remember, he, uh, Tertullian wrote this. Let me go to my notes. Somewhere between 197. Hang on. Let me, I got to look up my notes for the Didache. Hang on. I got too many notes here. Um, somewhere between 197 and 220 AD. So between 197 and 220 AD, a sacramental understanding of baptism is in effect. There is no denying it. There's no way to get around it. Now, the question is, this really is the question, then how do we understand salvation? Is salvation that you, you get baptized? Obviously, no faith is involved, right? If you, if you bring in infant baptism, if you bring in infant baptism, clearly, the, now some people say, well, it's the faith of the godparents. You, people try all kinds of things, but clearly that baby is being saved apart from faith, right? Now, you, now they may argue the baptism gives faith, but many babies who are baptized grow up to become atheist and agnostic. So clearly that doesn't work. So the baby is supposedly being saved by the, the, the invocation and the power of the water because the spirit is in it. It washes away their sin. They have eternal life. Now, so immediately you're like, well, wait a minute. Is this an imputed righteousness or an infused righteousness? Well, clearly we know how the churches who do this handle it. It can't be an imputed righteousness because the baby can lose their salvation. Well, if they can lose their salvation, then it's not based off an imputed righteousness because they would not be able to lose that which was imputed to them. So now clearly it's an infused righteousness, which they have to cooperate with. And if they don't cooperate it or take it as their own or whatever the right words are, they lose it. Well, then clearly now, not only do you have a whole different system of salvation, clearly you've abandoned salvation by grace alone, through faith alone, because of Christ alone, because of an imputed righteousness. Now, Tertullian has not even mentioned, obviously, imputed righteousness here. He just seems to say this water has power because of Genesis. And when we say the right words, boom, sin is gone. Salvation has come. Sanctification has occurred. You're renewed to, you're restored to the image of God. It's been right. It's everything. You're made right with God again. There we have it. We made it through two chapters. I wanted to do this with the church. But that's as far as we made it. So chapter four, the prime evil hovering of the spirit of God over the waters, typical of baptism, the universal element of water, thus made a channel of sanctification, resemblance between the outward sign and the inward grace. We looked at that. Then we looked at chapter five, use made of water by heathens, type of angel to pull up Bethsaida. And um, the only thing that I, I'm a little perplexed by, the Eleusian games, if I can say the name right again, the Eleusian games, 
Eleusinian games. That one, I'm not so. I mean, that dates back obviously to around 600 BC. If we're if we're, if we're connecting it to the Eleusinian Eleusinian mysteries, if we're connecting it to that around 600 something BC, the Apollinarian Apollinarian. And every art, anytime you look up Apollinarian, it's Apollinarianism. And I'm very familiar with Apollinarianism and Eutychianism. We've talked about that in our studies on Christological heresies of the past, Council of Nicaea, and the councils that address Apollinarianism and Eutychianism. I understand that. But that seems to come later than this writing. So he says the events at the Apollinarian and Eleusinian Games. The Eleusinian Games. Now, the Apollinarian, let me see. I'm going to try the Apollinarian Games. I'm going to try, because I don't know what he's referring to here. Okay, hang on. No, I want Apollinarian Games. See, and none of this, nothing comes up. Okay, uh. Apollinaries. The Ludi Apollinaries were solemn games held annually by the ancient Romans in honor of the god Apollo. The tradition goes that at the first celebration hereof, they were suddenly invaded by the enemy and obligated to take their arms. Apollinaries. This, okay, maybe maybe this is what they're. These are solemn games. Uh, see, um, I'm looking here. The games were held, including maybe. Uh, so this would be BC between 239 and 169 BC. Maybe that's what it's referring because these are games. The the the, the Ludi Apollinaries. That, that's just, I'm never, I'm not familiar with them. So maybe that's what Tertullian was referring to. The Eleusinian games, the Eleusinian games, and the Apollinarian games. That has to be what he's referring to. And he says that people were baptized there. But not baptized in a Christian way, in a pagan way. And these seem to wait, we, all both of these seem to way predate Christianity. So you had people being baptized to wash away their sins. So, there's a lot. I I don't know. I don't want to make any assumptions there. There I'll just stop. I'll just stop right there. You can read it for yourself. We're reading Tertullian on baptism. You can work through it all yourself. Um, Sometimes there's certain things mentioned here that you're kind of like, what exactly are you referring to, Mr. Tertullian? Obviously, I can't call him up or text him. A lot of people can... I mean, a lot of people can have speculation about some of them. I like to just work through it together the way we just did. And um, maybe these concepts were, and we'll put it this way. He clearly, Tertullian himself acknowledges that the ancients, he refers to them as the ancients, looked for basically water to purify from, say, murder or some other kind of sin. So, that the this was an ancient practice. When you do bad, water, water, water washes it away. And clearly that entered into Christianity. And it became the dominant view, a sacramental view. Now, I will just argue the sacramental view, once it clearly is applied to babies, once it's applied to babies, it, that that I, I don't believe there's any way to make that system work and still believe we're saved by an imputed righteousness apart from works, unless you say every baby baptized is eternally saved and it doesn't matter what they do, doesn't matter if they grow up and become an agnostic or an atheist, they are saved because God saved them through this supernatural act of baptism with water. And their sins are washed away and his imputed righteousness is accredited to their account. If you say that they can lose it, you're denying a salvation by an imputed righteousness. Now it's a salvation by works. Now, how would it work as a sacrament and far as adults are concerned? Interesting enough, 
Tertullian has just mentioned the invocation said over the waters. He's not said anything yet about the faith of the ones receiving the baptism. All right, the next chapter we'll, we'll look at next time is this. The angel, the forerunner of the Holy Spirit, meaning contained in the baptismal formula. It's a very short chapter. I almost want to do it now, but we won't. All right, so we made it. So that'll be chapter six. And that's what we'll do next time. We may wait till church to do this. I'm almost, I feel like I'm on a row. I'm, I'm, I'm on a roll right there. I'm in a row. I'm on a roll right there. And, uh, but I'll stop. Email me your thoughts. Newsif at yahoo.com. Newsif at yahoo.com. That's newsif at yahoo.com. Newsif at yahoo.com. Thanks for listening. We'll probably do some more live broadcasting. Maybe sometime this evening. We'll see. Probably going to try to find some food. Maybe listen to a little music. I don't know. Maybe watch some TV. But we'll, we'll see if we can get something else done this evening. Thanks for listening. Everyone have a great night. God bless.